Well, look, Dad, your friend is building it. My friends, we were downtown driving around the new soccer stadium that is being built right here in St. Louis, Missouri, when my son Patrick yelled that out from the back seat of the car. Look, Dad, your friends are building it. He was referring to my friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies is proud to be a part of the team that is bringing Major League Soccer to America's first soccer capital right here in St. Louis, Missouri. As construction partners of the St. Louis City Stadium, they are looking forward for this project to be a place for entertainment, camaraderie, and passion for generations to come. You can learn more about that project and look what else they're building, Dad, by visiting them right now online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. Today's guest, you're going to love him, has made his life's work to understand trust in leadership and organizations. Whether you are leading a team of one or 1,000, whether you got a family unit you're in front of or a Fortune 100 organization, this conversation today is for you. Stephen M. R. Covey is the New York Times bestselling author of The Speed of Trust. It's a great book. He's also the former CEO of Covey Leadership Center which under his guidance became the largest leadership development company in the world. Stephen personally led the strategy that propelled his dad's book, you may have heard of this one, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, to become one of the most successful and most influential business books of the 20th century. You're going to absolutely love, though, not what he brags about, but what he shares, the humility of his story. Stephen's going to talk about the important lessons his parents modeled for their nine children. Now, that's not a misspelling. That's not me speaking out of turn like I sometimes do. This is just fact. They had nine babies. The journey, ultimately, of finding his own purpose, his own place within his legendary father's business. We also talk at length about the importance of trust, trust in ourselves, and trust in others. And how, as truly great leaders, that means you, listeners, I'm talking directly to you today, how truly great leaders, our call is to unleash the potential and greatness within others. On the front side of this conversation, I want to share a couple points that I think you're going to love. First, we're going to talk about building and rebuilding trust and the idea that you cannot talk your way out of a problem. You've got to behave your way out of it. I'm going to say that again. You're going to hear it from Stephen here momentarily, but hear it loud and clear. Write it down on the front side. You cannot talk your way back into a relationship, back into an organization, back into that sacred space. You've got to earn it through your behavior, and you've got to earn it day after day after day. It's a huge piece. And secondly, we're going to discuss how people have greatness inside of them, and it is our job as leaders to recognize it and unleash it rather than try to control it and tap into it. No, we want to release that. We want to free them to become the best versions of themselves. So my encouragement on the front side of this conversation is for you to grab your favorite Live Inspired journal. Go ahead and make sure the volume is loud and clear on your device so you can hear every word that Stephen shares. Get ready to take some notes as I bring on my friend. He's about to be yours. His name is Stephen M. R. Covey. Stephen, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey, John, I'm so delighted, really honored to be with you today. Thank you so much. Well, our our listeners just got a taste for why I respect you and love your heart and your work as much as I do. But you probably don't always get led into a conversation with that kind of introduction. When you meet someone for the first time, maybe at an airport, maybe at a grocery store, wherever it might be, and you introduce yourself by your first name, and they say, Stephen, hmm, name sounds familiar. What do you do? How do you respond to that? I, I usually say, well, I write books. I say, yeah, I thought I heard something about that. And then I usually will say, have you ever heard the seven habits of highly effective people? That's, that's it. Are you that Stephen Covey? And then I say, nope, 
that's my dad. Because <laughs> right. inevitably, he- inevitably, when they've heard the name, it's not for me, it's for, it's for my dad. But, I, but I'm actually really proud of that. And so I have fun with it, and they do too. I'm glad you started there because that's where I want to start. It's actually where the book that I received, I received, I purchased one, but then my friend Stephen Covey sent me one in the mail that's signed by him to me. And then there's this little introduction that I would like to read word for word because this is where our interview is going to begin, Steve. To my mother and father, Sandra and Stephen R. Covey, who modeled to me what it means to be trust and inspire parents and leaders. Let's begin with your mom and dad, not only in the book, but in this conversation. Talk first about your mother. I know far less about mom than I do about your dad. Talk about your mom. She was amazing. Passed away about two years ago. Lived a full life. Uber talented with with enormous gifts and strengths, great capacity. But her greatest gift was love. Hmm. Her greatest gift was also a fierce loyalty to her children and to her grandchildren. And she was your defender. She was your advocate. She was someone who believed in you and took your side. And it it was great because growing up, sometimes if you wanted straight up advice, you'd go to my dad. But if you wanted someone to be on your side and to advocate (laughs) for you and to show empathy and, and real compassion and and you'd go to my mom and uh, it, it, they were a great team, great combination. But I, I will say this, that my father is the one that was more the public figure mm-hmm. and did it, that more people knew. Um, but my mother was every bit his equal. She was that great in, in her own right. And maybe the greatest uh, tribute and legacy to her is that she, she loved the community. She loved the arts she loved neighborhoods. She loved gatherings. She'd bring people together all the time. And so she felt like in the community where we live um, that we needed a performing art center, that any great community needs to have one. So she worked on this for really over 20 years mm. with 10 years of that being intense work to try to raise money, get the interest, find the place to put this, build it. Well, the whole thing did happen. And she was the primary driver behind it. And then when they announced that they were doing this, they named the center, the Sandra M. Covey Center for the Performing Arts. And so the Covey Center for the Arts is named after my mother. People kind of assume when they hear Covey Center for the Arts, it must be Stephen R. Covey, because he's more known publicly. No, it was Sandra M. Covey because of her driving force to rally a community behind building community, building neighborhoods, and, and, um, and really appreciating, doing, loving, being inspired by the finer things in life, the arts. What a beautiful synopsis. And, and I think if I'm getting the phraseology proper, fierce, fierce defender and advocate for her children. She needed to be fierce with nine, is that right? Nine little ones <laughs> nine of us. around, I think. You were prolific yourselves. You generated 55 grandbabies for <laughs> Grandma Sandy. Yeah, I contributed five of those 55. Yeah, we have uh, quite a clan. There's nine of us siblings between the nine. Actually, I think it's 56 now. So yeah, 56 grandkids mm. of my parents. And that's her legacy uh, mm. is, is, uh, is family and community because she treated community like family and friends and, and, and the like. And my mother loved to, uh, to, to gather. That's the word I would use to go out with friends. And she had friends her entire life. The last 12 years of my mother's life um, were not easy. She had a, she had a back surgery that went awry and she ended up in a wheelchair for the last 12 years of her life where she was wheelchair bound. And it was at first really quite discouraging. And she kept thinking that she'd be able to recover and walk again. And, but over some time, she realized that may not happen again, but how she handled this was remarkable. Mm. Talk about an example to her children and grandchildren, and even some great grandchildren, because it's like my father teaches in seven habits. It's not what happens to you. It's how we respond to it in between stimulus and response. There is a space. And in that space lies our freedom and our choices. Mm. 
And she chose to remain positive, excited for life, resilient. And she didn't quit anything. She kept going to movies, to lunches, to outings, to concerts. She did not let a wheelchair slow her down, let alone stop her. And she did everything and she lived a full and complete life. And you wouldn't have known that she had some physical limitations by who she was with her zest and zeal for life, her abundance, her inspiration. So, you know, tough things happened in that, that uh, was, was discouraging, certainly. Yeah. And, and it could become depressing. And she rose above it and chose her response and was a great model for all of us. And I'm so glad you shared a bit about a woman who is not only a matriarch, but a remarkable woman, a remarkable leader, and married to a phenomenal human being. I, I have a dear friend whose father was a f- world-class author and speaker and a name that you would recognize. Everybody, every one of our listeners would know it. And I was talking to him once about his dad, and he said, John, he taught the world all that they could achieve, but he taught me what I did not want to become myself. Mm. Meaning his father was something very different as an author and very different as a speaker than he was when the door shut and he was a dad. He was a very different person at home than he was on the road. Your dad, on the other hand, was the same both in the light and in the dark, on the road, on the stage, in the public's eye, but also in your eye. Talk about what you learned from your dad growing up. What you just said was maybe the single greatest thing I learned from my dad was, um, in fact, this is what I shared at his funeral. And it's been about 10 years. And I really thought hard about what could I say about my dad when so much has been said. And I thought, what I can say is I can let people know who I see. And here's what I said. I said, as good as my father was in public, as an author, as a teacher, as a speaker, and he was very, very good. As good as he was in public, he was even better in private. As a husband to my mother, as a father to us kids, he was who you thought he was. He had real integrity, and that was a source of his power. And that's what I learned from him is that what gave him courage, what gave him really power and what he did was that he really strived to live it, to model it. He had integrity, authenticity. He was true to himself. And he was the same person in private as he was in public. And like the example you gave that sometimes, you know, of the other person where sometimes people can, you know, get on stage and just wow an audience with an amazing, dazzling presentation. And then they walk backstage and they're like a different person. Well, my father was really good on stage and he was even better off stage in terms of how he treated everyone, not just the important people with status and stature, but everyone from the person that was applying the makeup to the AV person. He treated as if he were the CEO of the company. He treated everyone the same with respect, with love, with kindness, with generosity. And also he always took the time to look into people's eyes and to listen to the person and to affirm them. And somehow people would open up to him in small windows, small moments, because he was, he would just penetrate with his eyes. They were eyes of empathy and love, not judgment. And, and somehow people would then somewhat open up with him in small windows of time. And then he would affirm them and, and help them come to believe in themselves. And I, I know this because I saw it myself, but more than anything, over the last 10 years, I run into people all the time who said, can I tell you a story about your dad? And we had, you know, he came and spoke at our conference and I walked him back to the car. And in those five minutes of walking him back, he gave me advice that has impacted my entire life. But, but I felt so affirmed, so loved, so valued. And that's maybe the kindest and most accurate tribute I can pay to my father is what I just said, as good as he was in public. And he was really, really good. He was even better in private. And that's what I learned from him. That's beautiful. You also learned quite a bit by not only having two remarkable parents, you had eight siblings running around this house. We do have a question from one of our listeners. A question comes in from a Sean C. And Sean C. wants to know why you beat up on your little brother, Sean, so often. (laughs) 
I think he's misremembering as the ex expression goes. <laughs> I have two older sisters and then the three boys came, me and then Sean, and then David, and then the, the younger kids. And so we were all together within like a four year period, these three boys, we were like, you would expect three young boys wrestling and having fun and sometimes maybe getting out of hand. There's probably some element of truth to it. <laughs> and there's probably a little bit of exaggeration to it. But I, I think the main thing is that we're no different than anybody else. Mm -hmm. We are a family, not a perfect family. And I was not a perfect kid. Some many years later, as I grew up, I do remember going to Sean and say, you know what? As I look back on my childhood, I realized that there were times I was a bit of physical with you, would shove you, and I apologize for it. I tried to make amends later in life, but uh, we're really not quite different than most families, just rambunctious boys wrestling and playing around. But well, I, but I'm I do- I'm waiting for my apology for my brother, Jim, and my four <laughs> sisters. So I will let you know when they make amends for the torture they put their little brother, John, through growing up. <laughs> you know, when, when I was growing up, I loved my dad, but I never wanted to become an attorney. I love my mom. She taught school and she raised six kids, but I, I didn't necessarily want to do that either. I just kind of meandered through life and I had some passions and interests, but nothing really stoked the fire. For you as a kid, with such a powerful couple in front of you, guiding you forward, mom and dad, when did you begin to realize your calling? When did you recognize not only who you were, but what your unique talent might become. It's been a process of both discovery and creation. I will say this, that initially, John, I was a little bit fearful of trying to do what my father was doing because, you know, he is the guy that wrote the seven habits of highly effective people. You know, how are you going to, how are you going to ever come up with something that's as good as that? And he would present all over the world. And so that was a bit intimidating to think that I'll try to write or speak when I carry my father's name. And I was a little bit intimidated by that early on. I, I went to, did my undergraduate, worked for a few years. Then I went to business school, Harvard Business School, got an MBA, and I came out of that. And I was kind of debating, what do I do? Do I, I had an opportunity on Wall Street where I'd worked in the prior summer. I had an opportunity to continue real estate development where I'd been prior to business school. Those were both great opportunities with great companies. Then I also had an opportunity to join with my dad. He came after me too and said, we've got this company, Covey Leadership Center, and we're going to do some great things with this. We were really quite small at the time. It was before the Seven Habits book came out. But I knew about the Seven Habits because my dad had been teaching it really for 10 years before the book came out. He goes, we're going to launch the book and we think that we ha have a chance to really change the world, impact people everywhere. So I chose to go with him, but I also kind of made a conscious choice that, that I'm going to carve out a path on the business side that I, rather than trying to do what my dad does and teach and write about it, I really had nothing to say other than what he, he was saying. And I'd go down the business path. And, and so I did that. And I went into, you know, I, I managed clients and, and sold and, and did a little bit of uh, consulting work and built a team and then ran the team and kind of went down the business path. And then I became the leader of the whole client group. And at some point I became our president and CEO and helped build the Covey Leadership Center. And it was a conscious choice of, you know, my dad is the writer, the thinker, the author, and I'm a business guy. Yeah. And it was partly because I did have, I, I felt like I did have some talent and ability there you know, that came out of my, my schooling, my MBA. And, and I, and I, I thought like a business person, but in fairness, John, and being completely vulnerable and transparent, I also was a little bit afraid, yeah. a little bit fearful to, to imagine to, I'm going to go out and speak. And I, and um, you know, I just felt like I'll just be seen as a poor man's version at best of my father that was a little bit frightening. So it's easier to carve out a, I'm the business person. My father's the thought leader. Mm. And I went down that path and, and I think I did a good job at that and built the company and we expanded throughout the world. We became one of the largest leadership development companies in the world at the time, if not the largest. 
and kind of, and I felt like I put my stamp on that. Interestingly, it was kind of when we, we did a merger of our Covey Leadership Center with Franklin Quest, the time management company to form Franklin Covey. And it was after this merger that I felt like, okay, now I'm not running the whole thing anymore. I felt like I wanted, I now found what I wanted to say. Mm. And, and it came out of this merger where we, two good companies with good people, good values, but we'd been arts competitors for years in the marketplace. We're now combined and there was distrust between the, the people. It was kind of divided down party lines, if you will, the, the Covey side and the Franklin side, not because we'd done bad things to each other, but because we had been competing for years in the marketplace and we had different approaches and philosophies. So you, you combine us competitors, even with good people having good values, there was distrust. And I saw firsthand the high cost of low trust, how everything became politicized and everything slowed down, everything took longer. And we were, we were becoming internally focused on ourselves, not focused on the clients and the marketplace and customers. And, and, and uh, we, we were not performing. And we became aware of this, that, you know what, this merger is not going to achieve its potential because of our own distrust. So then we became intentional and deliberate about saying, we've got to build trust with each other. And it's not like we've done bad things. It's just that we haven't built it intentionally. So we began to focus on building this trust between these combined companies so that we could have one company, Franklin Covey, and not two companies that was forced into a merger that, that uh, people were still fighting and resisting emotionally. So we, we did this. It took time, but we behaved our way into greater trust together. And when we came out of that, suddenly we built, we'd gone from low trust to high trust. And now everything changed. We became far more collaborative, far more innovative, far more engaged, far more inspired. And we got better economics, better performance. It changed our whole world. And it was coming out of that, I, came, I said, wow, I have seen firsthand the power of trust. When there's distrust, the cost of that. But when there's high trust, the dividends, the benefits that come from that. I've seen why trust matters, but I've also seen how you can move the needle on trust. It's learnable. Yes. It's not something you either have or you don't. Just like you can lose it through behavior, you can build it and grow it through behavior. And you can get good at this. And it matters. And I, and I said, I think that is worth saying. Mm-hmm. I think I have found my voice, which has been earned from a crucible, you know, because in this process, half the people didn't trust me too. And I'd felt the pain of distrust. And I also learned how to build it. And so coming out of that, I said, I know what I want to talk about. And this became then my act too in my career, which is, I no longer felt afraid to go out and risk and be vulnerable and, and try to speak, try to write, follow in my dad's footsteps, but not worry about it, not worry about a comparison because I felt like I, I, I found my voice and I had something to say that I felt passionate about. And so sure enough, within a few years, I, I put out the book, The Speed of Trust, my first book. And I've been working on this trust idea for over 25 years now. And, and it's become my kind of my new thing. And I, and, and, and I was able to overcome my fear yeah. and, and, um, and, and uh, kind of find my voice in doing this. And so that's kind of a long answer to your question because it kind of had two halves to it. But I'm now in the second half of this and I feel like this is my life's work. So I'm going to accelerate through a whole bunch of questions I had around you growing the business uh, 12 times into 40 nations. Unbelievable. Uh, the, the, the work you did in real estate, your first job being yeah. rejected 13 times, all these beautiful <laughs> stories that are part of your resume, some of them painful, some all of them painful. critical though, into the speed of trust. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on this book because I want to get into the newest one, but there are three quotes that I love. And the first one, I think, will bring people alongside of us and into the conversation who may not yet recognize how critical trust is, not only collectively, 
but in your own life. So here, here comes this big, long quote, but it's an important one. There is one thing that is common to every individual relationship, team, family, organization, nation, economy, and civilization throughout the world. The most successful business, the most thriving economy, the most influential leadership, the greatest friendship, the strongest character, the deepest love. One thing which, if will removed, will destroy the most powerful government, the most successful business, and then onward from there. And it is trust. You go on to say, on the other hand, if developed and leveraged, that one thing has the potential to create unparalleled success and prosperity in every dimension of your life. Yet, trust. It is the least understood, the most neglected, and the most underestimated possibility of our time. It's trust. You kind of call out the value of trust there, but speak to that quote for a little bit. Yeah. I ended up subtitling the Speed of Trust book, The One Thing That Changes Everything. And that starting quote that you just read was the whole idea that, look, you can do everything else in life, in relationships, in teams, in organizations. But if you remove trust, take away trust, everything will unravel. The relationships don't work without trust. The organization doesn't run without trust. Even societies don't operate without trust. And so trust is so foundational to life, to relationships, to our world running. You take away trust, everything slows down or even grinds to a halt. Mm. Trust makes our world go around. But we often don't realize that until we lose the trust. <laughs> it's like, you know, Warren Buffett put it this way. He said, trust is like air. When it's present, we don't really notice. But when it's absent, then everybody notices. And so, you know, we've, we've learned when we've lost trust, there is a cost and a consequence of that. We, we suddenly become painfully aware. And I wanted to not only look at the loss of trust, I wanted to, us also to focus on the presence of trust, what life is like with greater trust, what relationships are like when, when people can trust each other and do trust each other, what a team is like when they operate with trust, what an organization can do with trust, what, is, what a community can do right. with trust in society. So it's the one thing that changes everything. And, and there's overwhelming data on this. Um, that you can look at it economically, you can look at a lot, lot of, on a leadership standpoint. If you increase the level of trust in any person, relationship, team, or culture, everything else that you'll, you're trying to do, you can do better. There's a multiplier effect to it. And the opposite is true as well. If you diminish, dilute the trust, everything else you're trying to do is diminished, diluted, taxed. Mm. So it changes everything in either direction for good or bad. So becoming good at trust, building trust intentionally has a huge payoff, not just in business outcomes, but in the quality of life that we live in energy and in joy and in inspiration. Hmm. Let's talk about that for a moment, building trust. So it's one thing to hear these big, beautiful sentences that kick off books. It's another thing to say, yeah, you don't know my husband. You, you don't know my kids. You don't know what she did to me. You don't know what it's like to be part of this team that I'm part of. So for those of us who have reason to doubt the trust in others, how do we begin to rebuild that? First of all, I empathize because uh, that's real. There's, there's distrust all around us in our world and, and certainly in relationships. I think the way that we begin to both build and rebuild trust is first to look in the mirror. Mm. And, and uh, that's clearly true for building it. I even believe it's true for rebuilding it, even if someone else is maybe at fault. And the reason I say that is that when we look in the mirror, we're saying, first, do I trust myself? Do I trust myself? Because think about it. If you don't trust yourself, how are you going to build trust with other people? At some point, if you don't trust yourself, that distrust of self will tend to leak out, bleed out into relationships. Because, um, gosh, if I can't trust myself, can you be trusted? I don't know that you can. And, but the more trust you have in yourself, that doesn't mean that you, you think you're perfect. It just means that you have a, self, a, a sense of self-confidence, of integrity, 
like my father had that, you know, he was who he said he was. He was authentic. There was self-trust there. The greater that trust in self, the easier, the natural, the more abundant it is to build trust with others. So it's truly inside out. We look in the mirror first, trusting ourselves, giving to those around us a person who they can trust so that it's smart to trust you. I talk about smart trust. Is it smart to trust you because you're trustworthy, because you're credible? So that's where you always begin, self-trust. Then you ripple out from yourself to your relationship. So I use a ripple effect metaphor. The drop of water comes down. The ripples, the waves, they start at the inside, they ripple out. Self-trust is where it all begins. It then ripples out to relationship trust. It then ripples out from there to team trust, to group trust, family trust. It then ripples out from there to organizational trust. It then ripples out from there to market or stakeholder trust. And then it ripples out from there to community or societal trust. Inside out. It's when it comes to trust, Human nature is that we tend to go outside in and look at and saying, as soon as they change, he changes, you know, this, this company changes, our management changes, my neighbor, my spouse, my kids, then I can trust that those are all factors. Those are all real, but the way we're going to change it is to look in the mirror and say, how credible am I? Do I trust myself? Do I give to others a person they can trust and let that ripple out from there? Behave your way into greater trust. Now, look, you still have to address issues with others. And sometimes we have to restore trust with others. And, the, and when it comes to restoring trust, the key principle is this. You can't talk your way out of a problem that you behaved your way into. <laughs> I mean, come on, we're going to drop the mic right now. I'm going to have everybody go to the, the ice box, get a cold drink, come on back in. Say that one more time, Stephen Covey. You can't talk your way out of a problem that you behaved your way into. In other words, if we've lost people's trust through our behavior, words alone won't get it back. The only way that we'll get it back is through our behavior. We have to behave our way back into trust, just like we behaved our way out of trust. And But here's the positive thing on that. So you can't spin your way out. You can't talk your way out. But you can, I believe, in most situations, you can behave your way out if you're willing to do it mm. and if others are willing to give you a chance to do it. And vice versa, if someone's lost your trust and it's their fault, are you willing to give them a chance to behave their way back into trust? Because my guess is if that's happened to us, someone's lost our trust, words alone won't get it back with us. But if someone demonstrates through their actions, through what they do consistently over time, that could earn it back, especially if they want to win it back. That's hopeful because we've all made mistakes. We've all fallen short. I learned this from my dad, both building trust and also restoring trust in little things. I remember one time that I was a teenager. I was a brat. And, and I remember, uh, you know, sounding off at my dad and, and, and he kind of just put me in my place. He said, look, you're going to behave. And and, and grounded me. And I remember saying to myself, I'm never going to forgive my dad, you know, type of thing. Um, so I remember sitting in my room saying, and I, I think I was 12 or 13, you know, I know dad, he's going to come in and try to apologize, but I'm not going to forgive him. I'm not going to forgive him. And, and sure enough, my dad did come in and say, look, I, I apologize for losing my temper. I was wrong. I, I didn't respond, but my dad just, just stayed there in the room and just remained there. And it was kind of awkward at first, but then it wasn't over time. And then pretty soon we started to have a little bit of, you know, small chat. Pretty soon it got a little bit more serious. And then pretty soon I was opening up and talking to him because he was just a great listener. He was just listening. All he was doing was listening, listening, listening. And then after two hours, <laughs> I remember saying, oh, thanks so much, dad. I love you. And I, and I apologize for overreacting too. So it was just a little small violation of trust in our emotional bank account, our trust account with each other, but he behaved his way back into it. He didn't try to talk his way out. What he did was he just listened Yes. and he spent time. He, I'm sure he didn't have, I'm sure he didn't have two hours, but he didn't try to be efficient with me. He knew that he had made a withdrawal and now he was trying to make a deposit that was in, sincere mm. and he did. And, and the point is 
you can behave your way back into trust. We can do it with our children. We can do it with friends, with spouses, with neighbors. It's not easy. And it may not be possible in every situation. There might be some violations of trust that are so egregious that restoring it maybe isn't a good thing or desirable. You know, in an abusive relationship, perhaps it's, it's past the point of repair. There are circumstances that I wouldn't want to judge for another, but it may not be possible in every situation. But I believe if both parties are willing, one party willing to give the other opportunity, the other party willing to behave their way back into trust, not just talk their way, I think it's possible. And I think that is maybe some of the greatest joy in life is to repair a broken relationship. That's so good. We could spend an awful lot of time on The Speed of Trust. I think it's a phenomenal book. It's 14 years old, I believe. And it's relevant, maybe more relevant today than when you wrote it. It's a really worthy read. It also has allowed you to discover and then elevate your voice, which has then led you to stages around the world. I think you've spoken on stages in 55 different countries. That's remarkable. So I wanted to spend some time talking about how you tweak messages based upon the audience, but we're going to run out of time. So instead of talking about that, as a speaker like you, I've had the opportunity and the challenge and the honor of following all kinds of people who speak before and after me. You one time had the opportunity of following a general who spoke specifically on the power of command and control. Command and control, people. That, that is the focus of this person's message, <laughs> which is the exact opposite of the message you were about to share. The exact opposite. Your, your job that day, if you will, was to share with them the weakness of command and control. So why don't we talk about that day, share with our listeners what it means to be command and control, and then how do you compassionately but boldly, courageously put forward a different message than the general put forward? You're exactly right. I'll never forget it because uh, the whole meeting had been organized. They wanted me to come in to kind of help the leader, the, 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 the CEO of the group to become more trusting. <laughs> and But sure enough, consistent with his personality, you know, he was a very command and control leader. He took over the planning committee's job <laughs> and took over the whole thing and, and brought in his people, but they kept me on the lineup. And so the general got up and he, the general was a friend of the CEO and he, and he gave his command and control message, military style type thing, you know, traditional military. And I had to follow. And my message was that command and control, maybe that worked in a bygone era in, in the industrial age, but I don't know that it, it ever worked that well, even if it did work. <laughs> I think we left a lot of value on the table, but I wanted to make the point that that's not going to work very well today in our new world of work, in a new world where we have extraordinary diversity and diff- you know, as many as five generations at work where with millennials and Gen Z that don't want to be managed who want to be led instead, who want to be trusted and inspired. That's not going to work in a time where we have to build a great culture to attract and keep the best people when there's a a war for talent and it's hard to keep people and people have choices and options that they didn't have before. And so if you don't have a great culture that attracts people, they'll go find a place that does. If you don't, if you're to command and control people, people will not respond to that they'll go find a place to where they're trusted and inspired. And so you're not going to build a great culture with command and control. You're not going to inspire with command and control and people want to be inspired. That's why I love your work so much, John live inspired. People want to live inspired. It's aspirational. It's a better way of living. And even at work, we want to be inspired at work and you can't do that with command and control, but also the world is changing so fast. And we got to stay relevant in a changing world. And you're only going to do that if we innovate and collaborate. And you can't command and control your way to collaboration and innovation. My whole point was that command and control is past its expiration date. As if it ever was that effective to begin with. It wasn't. But it's not effective very much at all today. So even though the general went in front of me and said, command and control, command and control, I had the courage to say, you know what? I'm not, I'm going to come up. I'm going to give my message, which is that command and control doesn't work anymore. Most audience members don't realize this is a conversation we have. It's not me at you or Covey at you. It's us collectively. 
so when you walk on stage, the conversation's already going on. By the time you walked off stage, how did the audience receive your message of trust and inspire? I think they received it really well. Well, I know they did because they responded to it and they reacted to it by saying, you know what, this is a better way to lead. And it's more relevant for our, our company, more relevant for our world, more relevant for our people. And so my message was the contrast, which is trust and inspire. Now, the exact opposite of command and control is more abdicate and abandon. Now, that's completely hands-off. If command and control is hands-on, extensively hands-on, right. the opposite is a abdicate and abandon. That's completely hands-off or just not even involved. I say trust and inspire is a third alternative. It's hand-in-hand. We're doing this together. It's with people, not to people, or even for people, transactional exchange. It's with people based on inspiration, based upon respect and collaboration and partnering and teaming and real respect, reverence for, the, for human beings. And so I presented Trust and Inspire as a third alternative that still had control built into it, but not traditional authoritarian control, but instead control through the form of self-governance, control through the form of mutually created agreements around trust that we were extending to people with expectations and accountability built into the agreement around the extension of trust, with trust, with control built in around building a great culture, where the culture would hold people accountable to our values, not having a whole set of rules and regulations. And so I made the point there was actually more control in a trust and inspire culture than there is in a rules-based culture because you can't come up with enough rules for people who you can't trust. And so I said, this is a third alternative and it, it, that you can have control and be in charge without being controlling. Mm-hmm. You can be force, you can be strong without being forceful. You can be authoritative without being authoritarian. And people, I think they got the message. They said, you know what? This is a better way to lead. And they responded, and even the CEO who, you know, he responded well, and here's what was also surprising. Even the general responded well. He stayed and he came up to me and he said, you know what? I think you're right. It's shifting. And while I presented some principles that have worked in the past, I'm finding it's less and less relevant as I'm working with people today because of what they expect. So I think trust and inspire is an idea whose time has come. It represents the kind of leadership that's needed today. It's not command and control. It's trust and inspire. It's aspirational. We, we all like to be trusted. We all like to be inspired. And others around us want to be the same. People don't want to be managed. Right. People want to be led. You lead businesses forward, undoubtedly. However, you and I were talking before we hit record that, yeah, and... The, the real call is to, to elevate human potential within those in front of us. Yep. And so three different times, at least within your book, you have five values, five principles that you lay out. And the first time I saw it and I circled it. The second time I just bent over the page because I'm like, there it is again. And the third time I practically tore out the page because I love these five. We're not going to unpack all five today, but the first one is, and I'm going to read it word for word, people everyone, your employees, your leaders, your children, your neighbors, people have greatness inside of them. Your job then is to unleash that potential, not to try to control it. I love that. So everyone has potential within them. Our job as human beings, as leaders, as servants is to unleash their potential. So the question to you, Stephen M. R. Covey is this, how do we begin to unleash someone else's potential? Yes. It starts with that paradigm, that that belief. That's why these beliefs are so critical. And that very first belief, I believe that people have greatness inside of them. If you, it's hard to act with integrity outside of your paradigm. So if you don't believe that, if you believe that only some people, exceptional people have greatness, but not everybody, you know, only the high potentials have greatness and, you know, and, but that's only a few then I'm not fully buying into the belief. But if I believe, believe that people, everyone has the potential for greatness, 
if I start with that belief, then I can ultimately unleash it or at least help unleash it in people because I will first, I will see the greatness in others. It starts with seeing it because if you don't see it, they may not see it either. Hmm. And we might just pass each other by as a leader. You don't see the greatness in your people or in a person and they may not see it in themselves. And then we move forward with life and they don't see or discover their greatness and we don't see it in them either. That's so starting with that belief of how I see people, I see greatness inside of you. Even if it's not apparent, you know, always treat people according to their potential, not their behavior. You see their potential. You see it. That's awesome. Second step. So the first step is to see the greatness. And by the way, teachers, principals, parents, aunties, pay attention. This is really important stuff in particular as we try to elevate the heartbeat and the mindset and the uh, potential of our young people today. Absolutely. Especially so valuable in, in parenting and in aunting and uncling and, and also in schools. You see the greatness inside of your students. You see the greatness inside of your kids. Because if you don't see it, how are they going to see it? That's right. So you see it first. That's what a leader does. They see the greatness. Second, they then communicate the greatness. And by communicating that, you can communicate it in a way that the person can come to see it in themselves. Maybe they didn't see it before, but because I see the greatness and then I communicate to that person, you can do this. You have potential. You have talent. I see it in you. I see these strengths. I see these gifts. You can do this. I'm, I'm conveying to others. My father put it this way. He said, leadership is communicating mm. people's worth and potential so clearly that they are inspired to see it in themselves. Steven, so we use that quote around here, attributing it to your father on a daily basis. That, that is the best work that we leaders do. It really is. It, it really is because that's leadership. Yes. That they come to see it in themselves because you have conveyed it. You have communicated it to them in a way that they believe and maybe see it for the first time. Now, that wouldn't happen if you didn't first see it. You can't communicate something you don't believe. Right. That's why you got to have to have integrity. It needs to come back to adopting this belief as a core belief. So you see it. You see the potential. You communicate the potential. You then develop the potential. And developing can come about a variety of ways. It's all about growing people and you know, giving people opportunities, giving people chances. So this is heavily trusting people because when you trust people to take on a job, an opportunity, a challenge, it causes them to grow, to develop, to deliver. And, and it'd be easier to do it yourself, but then they're, they're not going to grow and develop and deliver. You know, My father, when he asked me to take care of the lawn, green and clean, he could have done it himself, but I wouldn't have grown. So instead, he trusted me to take it on. And in the process, I developed skills and, and I developed initiative and responsibility. And I started to see I could do this. He developed it. So a, a great way of developing people, of growing people, is to trust people, to be trusting the people and giving them chances and opportunities. Now, I'm not saying blindly, always you know, good, use good judgment. Do it in context, but find ways to be trusting of people, of others, in a way that makes sense for the situation where in the process of trusting them, they will grow. They will develop capabilities and talents and skills and, the, and confidence, and also where you let them have a chance to, to even do something better than maybe you would have done it yourself and mm -hmm. succeed. So that's the third thing is... So see the potential, communicate the potential, develop the potential, and then finally unleash the potential, which is put it into action, put it into practice. You've given them the opportunities, and now we're, we're tapping into that potential and that talent. We're saying, what do you think? And I'm really interested. I've engaged you in the business. I've engaged you in the opportunity. You're involved. I involve people in it. And then they use that talent, and they use those capabilities to impact our mission, to serve clients, to make a difference in the world. And then it perpetuates itself, becomes a virtuous upper self because when people then are unleashed, you now see more potential in them and they see more potential in themselves. And then you can communicate it, develop it, unleash it, it becomes this virtuous upward spiral, but it starts with seeing it. So mm -hmm. I, I, four words, see, 
communicate, develop, unleash the potential, the greatness that's inside of people. Yes, and I'll add, and start where you are. So going back to the conversation from 30 minutes ago, you got to look in the mirror. So we can't possibly elevate those around us if we don't start first by elevating ourselves and our perspective of who we are, whose we are, and what we're capable of doing through our lives. When you wrote this book and put a period on the last page and got ready to send it off to the, the publishing company, and as this thing now rolls into the world, what is one hope that you have as people read this book and then operationalize it? My one hope is that by adopting this style of leadership, this kind of leadership, trust and inspire, I hope that we will build a better world together for all of us. But it will be done one person at a time. It's back to that, that very point you just made. If only we do this for ourselves, become a trust and inspire person. Yes it will open up possibilities to become a trust and inspire parent or aunt or grandparent or godparent or friend or neighbor or coach or colleague or peer or boss. And, but it starts by becoming a trust and inspire person mm. where we see the greatness in others. And we try to unleash that potential, not contain or control it. We try to be trusting, not controlling. We try to be affirming not labeling. We try to see the possibilities. We try to inspire, not merely motivate. You know, motivation, as you know, because this is your world, motivation is external, it's extrinsic. That's command and control, carrot and stick. Does it work? Sure, it motivates people to want to get more rewards, more carrots, more sticks, but it doesn't inspire. Inspiration is internal, it's intrinsic, it's to breathe life into. From the Latin term, I breathe life into something. So I ignite the fire within, you know, on fire. Like you say, ignite that fire. I breathe life into versus command and control sucks the life out of. That is what we can do for others. We can be the candle that lights the other candles. We can ignite the fire within others, but we got to start with ourselves. You can't inspire others very well if you yourself aren't inspired. Rather than trying to, take the whole world on that's our aim we want to build a better world more trust and inspiration in our world because we we live in a world that's dangerously low in both trust and inspiration you're taking enormous you're making a huge dent more than a dent in the universe john live inspired in what you're doing and your books your thought leadership you are you are of a force (laughs) for good in inspiring our earth our world and people everywhere and, and that can be a bit daunting to try to do the whole thing. But if we all just say, what if I can become that person first for myself and then second, maybe for those just around me. That's right. And that alone is enormous. It can change generations and to have someone believe in you. You can be that person for your, your children or nieces and nephews. Stephen. And your neighbors. Honestly, man, I could spend hours just hanging out, sitting cross-legged at your feet, taking notes. Tragically, our time is is coming to an end. And we wrap up every podcast with the the Live Inspired 7. These are seven questions that tether all of our friends together. Quick questions, quick answers. Here we go, my friends. Buckle up your shoes. Question number one is, what's been the most influential book you have ever read? Well, I'm biased, but it'd be The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by my father. Gosh, is there a habit that most exemplifies your sweet father? I would say habit five, seek first to understand, then to be understood. He modeled all seven habits really quite well, um, but especially was empathic as a human being towards Mm -hmm. all of us. And that came through all the time. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. I'll tell you one last little thing. My father was asked one time, do you live the seven habits? And he said, about 80% of the time. (laughs) And he said, I try 100% of the time, but I fall short too. But I just get back on track. And I think that's a good metaphor for all of us in life. You know, just like an airplane that leaves um, LA and goes to New York, it's slightly off course, just slightly 90% of the time, but it just course corrects constantly. 
constant course correction, either by the pilot or by computer, just constantly course correct, and it ends up arriving at its destination, but it's slightly off course most of the flight. Mm. And I think that's how life is. We're, we're all trying, we're doing our best, and we're slightly off course most of the time, but we're just constantly course correcting. And my, my dad was the same with seven habits, just always trying to live it, constantly course correcting. What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy growing up, one of nine, that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Wonder. Wow. And uh, things you write about in your last book, you know, in awe, rediscovering that wonder. I want to rediscover it. That's why I'm inspired by your work. I, I had a lot of wonder and awe, and I want to, I want to rekindle that. It's clearly there and it's on display. So we see it. And I, uh, I look forward to the day where you see it even more clearly in yourself. Thank you. If, if your home caught fire, your spouse, your five babies, all pets are out safely and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what's the one thing you would come racing back outside with? My personal journals and, and history and notes. Now I'm trying to, I'm trying to digitize these <laughs> so that maybe I'd get my disc that would have it because right now I have them in paper form. And, and, um, and so it'd be smart for me to digitize them, but that I can't replicate that. Right. It's, it's my innermost thoughts, feelings, my learnings, my insights. Like for example, inspiration that came to me around the idea of writing the speed of trust and around the idea of trust and inspire. I've just captured these. And I, and I tend to do it in, in longhand, write, you know, I, I, I type things on the computer, but I find my best thinking comes when I physically hold a pen and write. Maybe that's just kind of a little bit how I'm wired and how I grew up. So I'm used to it, but um, I've, I've captured it and, I, and I, I wouldn't want to lose that. And I have them in one place. And my son, my son is getting me to, and my daughter they're getting me to digitize it. They're smart. They're savvy. And they're saying, dad, you can't lose this in case the fire comes. Uh, well, listen to their advice. Heed it, please. And, and get ready for the next question, which is if you could sit on a beautiful bench on a perfect afternoon day and have a long conversation with anyone living or deceased, who would you want to be seated next to? I would love to be seated next to my grandfather, the original Stephen Covey. Stephen Mack Covey. He's the first. I'm the fourth. My father was the third. And my son is Stephen the fifth and, and then the sixth, but we all have different middle names. So we don't carry the moniker. But he was um, the one I wrote about him in my first book, Speed of Trust. He was the sheep herder who was caught in a blizzard in Wyoming. He prayed that if he survived, that he would build a shelter there as a symbol of his gratitude for having survived. He did survive. He was true to his word. No one knew about this, but him and God, he came back some 45 years later and built that shelter in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming. And there's a little town to this day called Little America, Wyoming. It is a motel and a gas station. And, but he was true to his word that no one knew about, but him and God. And that kind of integrity, I feel is a legacy a, that has been transmitted through the genes that I want to live true to that. Mm. So I would love to talk to him about it. It's beautiful. What's the best advice that he or your father or mother or any other advisor in your, in your life ever gave you? So the best advice you've ever received is? The advice I received from my father, which is this, seek to bless, not to impress. Seek to bless, not to impress. And because I now present and speak like you do and do podcasts and shows and things, before I go on, before I do it, I come back to that, I reflect and I say, what's my motive here? Mm. Is my motive to try to impress anybody or is it just simply to try to bless? The moment I'm trying to impress, then I'm into ego, I'm into my head, I'm into trying to look good and it won't bless. It's, it's, that's trying to have self-interest. The moment instead I say, my motive is to bless, is to serve. 
I'm going to put service above self-interest. I'm going to be into people's hearts, not into their heads. And it's not about me. It's about them. And it's all captured in that beautiful expression, seek to bless, not to impress. It's my mantra that is very meaningful to me. That's good. What advice would you whisper into the, to the 20 year old version of yourself? Don't be afraid to be who you are as Stephen R. Covey's son. I've always been proud of being my dad's son. It's an extraordinary legacy and heritage. I feel a sense of stewardship from it. Early on, I was a little bit afraid of not measuring up. But again, I was into my own head then. And when I found my voice around what I wanted to say, and when I adopted the mantra, seek to bless, not to impress, I lost the fear. And I, and I was not afraid to, to be who I am. Stephen M.R. Covey, your father's son and your mother's son, it has been said that all great leaders can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? I lived life abundantly and inspired others to live better and more noble lives because of my presence and because of my influence. Mm. In other words, I want it to outlive me. And I want it to be about a ripple effect of making a difference. And if people can see in me someone living life abundantly and seeking to inspire, seeking to bless, then that will be a life well lived. I strive for that. I'm trying. I'm not there, but I'm on the journey. Stephen M. R. Covey, you have blessed and impressed during this conversation. I've looked up to you for as long as I've known you. I love the book. It's called Trust and Inspire. It's available all over the place right now. I encourage our listeners and viewers to check it out. And I want to thank you for not only creating great work, but living it through your life. There's a difference and you do both extremely well. So my friends, that is Stephen M. R. Covey. My name is John O'Leary and today is your day. Live Inspired. Well, my friends, I told you on the front side, you were going to love the interview, the conversation we just enjoyed together. And I think as we got near the end, you were nodding your head in agreement. I have long admired Stephen, his father, their work, Franklin Covey. They are changing minds, changing lives, changing hearts and organizations around the country and around the world. I have the opportunity of having Stephen on the podcast today. It was a delight. It was a joy. I also mentioned during our conversation that it's worth mentioning again, though, right now, our job as aunts and moms and dads and grannies and organizational leaders and friends is to identify the greatness in those that we are called forward to elevate. Stephen ultimately distills it into four words, see, communicate, develop, unleash. Meaning first, you got to see the potential in others. What you look for, you find. Secondly, you got to communicate the potential so that they can see it in themselves. Then work with them to develop that skill, that confidence, so that they can really begin prospering, flourishing, thriving in life. And then finally, our job is to inspire them to put that potential into action. See, communicate, develop, and unleash. What I think of ladies and gentlemen who do this extraordinarily well, I think first of a woman, she uh, is episode 000. That means the very first podcast ever released on the Live Inspired podcast. It is with Susan O'Leary, my mom. Talk about a woman who was able to really unleash the potential in those that she was called for to lead. So if you've never heard the interview with mom, our first ever, check it out. It's an awesome one. And then organizationally, one of my favorite organizational leaders is a fellow named Howard Bihar. He is a retired president of a little coffee shop called Starbucks. Phenomenal conversation. A man who is able to identify and call out and elevate the leadership ability in everyone that he encountered. And as a little surprise gift at the end of the conversation, he drops his cell phone, not literally on the floor. He shares the number of his cell phone because he wants to be so available that he can see and identify and unleash the potential within you as well. 
So if you're looking for some great leadership ideas, check out 000 with Susan O'Leary or more recently, episode 378 with my friend Howard Bihar. So my friends, for this time and until next time, I want to thank you again, as always, for being part of our Live Inspired podcast community. And I want to remind you that although life is filled with some challenges, that the foundation is firm, that you are not alone, that your life has worth, and that your best days are yet to come. So for this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary, and today's your day. What a gift. Live Inspired. Well, Akili Company's culture sets them apart, and their people live out the unique culture every single day. Perhaps it's best seen through their philanthropic foundation called Keely Cares. It was built on a passion for giving of their time, their talent, and their treasure to help improve the communities in which they live and where they work. We're so excited that they were named one of the top corporate philanthropists by the St. Louis Business Journal for 2021. You can learn more about Keely Cares by visiting them online at keelycompanies.com.